Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena and today our guest is a chair, mentor and advisor for various businesses. After becoming a board director at the age of 29 and co-founding the media agency PhD, he now advises businesses on how to raise funds, sell, manage profitability and more. His recent book, The Money Train, explores everything startup businesses need to know about investors. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome David Patterson. Welcome, David, to the podcast. It's lovely to have you on. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I just want to delve a little bit into your kind of background and what got you into business in the first place. So I know that you went to Harvard Business School. How do you think this set you up for becoming an entrepreneur and then becoming an advisor? I left school at 18. Uh, My family circumstances meant that I had to go out to work and I sort of fell into the advertising industry. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I would say up until a few years ago, I really still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I worked in the media side of advertising and worked for half a dozen agencies. And then I started my own business in 1990 when I was 33, 34. I went to work for a company when I was about the age of 25, and that's where I sort of discovered ambition. And the thing I learned there was that if I if I worked hard and did good things, people seemed to want to listen to what I had to say. I don't know whether I'm a natural entrepreneur or not. I, I, I set up my business with two partners, and I, I don't think I could have done it on my own. You know, I, I feel like I would have worked well with partners. And of course, you know, if you set up your own business, you learn so much so quickly. Actually, you learn more from when things go wrong than from when things go right. And I worked in my own business for 17 years, although we sold it after six. And I just learned lots. I went and worked in America, set up a business in America. I then traveled around the world setting up companies. How did that train me to be an entrepreneur? Well, I went to Harvard in 1997 and I did an advanced management program. And I I always say that was my university, but with a gold card. And fortunately, it was someone else's gold card, not mine. So that was helpful. I expected to get a book with all the answers to all the questions. And actually, it didn't teach me what to think. It taught me how to think. And I just felt that my decisions were much clearer or the decisions that needed to be made were much clearer. And I think that started me on the path to helping other people. And I think you sort of go through your career and you get to a point where you think, well, that seems like common sense to me. But actually, if people are hearing it for the first time, it's like big news for them. Whereas I think, you know, things I say, they say, God, that's brilliant. And I'll go, yeah, but that's just common sense. But actually, it's because I've had the experience. So am I a natural entrepreneur? I don't know, really. I've done a lot of entrepreneurial things. And I work with a lot of entrepreneurs now, and I really enjoy working with people who are starting up their own businesses and taking them through the whole process. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but hopefully I have. I mean, that's a good answer to uh, where you found your your initial ambition to become an entrepreneur. But one thing I noticed that you said there is that when you went to Harvard Business School, it taught you not necessarily what to think, but how to think. I'm just wondering what you mean by that. And if there is a specific way in which an entrepreneur's mind works, perhaps different to other people. 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I, and I think there are two parts to that. I think the first part is most of the people who go to Harvard Business School think that everybody else in the class is cleverer than they are. There are a few who think they are cleverer than everybody else, but they're the people who actually don't tend to do terribly well. So I sort of arrived there, and I was actually quite young in the class. There were 160 people, and I was definitely in the bottom quartile in terms of age. So I was quite young there, and I, and I did arrive thinking there's a lot of smart people. I mean, there were people from the World Bank. We had the head of the Jerusalem police. We, had, you know, I mean, it was an extraordinary mix of people. And actually what happened was that I realized over the period I was there that actually I was, you know, my thinking was just as good as anybody else's. And actually people were coming to me for points of view and things like that. So I think the first thing it did was give me some confidence in my own ability. And then I think the second thing is that it taught me that my instincts were pretty good and that I should listen to them. And I think if you put those two things together, what it therefore allowed me to do was not to overthink things, actually listen to myself early on in whatever the thought process I was going through, and also to have some confidence that I had some skills and some ability and some knowledge. I'm, I'm not a natural show-off, but actually it just gave me confidence. And it, what it did was it shortened decision-making processes for me. So it was listening to myself and listening to people telling me that what I had to say was, you know, good. So I think that's what it did. I, I, I always say I didn't learn a great deal at Harvard. It was a voyage of self-discovery. One thing I pick up on there through what you've just said is this idea of listening to yourself. And so I'm wondering if you think intuition is a big part in what makes a successful entrepreneur really successful or the ability to maybe listen to intuition? You can't ignore the facts. Certainly in the businesses I'm involved with now, there's a lot of data that you need to listen to. But if you entirely listen to the data, you won't always make the right decision. If you entirely listen to your intuition, particularly if you're making decisions in a very stressful situation, Sometimes that's not right either. You know, I've, I've heard it described as a mix of art and science, you know, science being the data and the art being intuition. And I actually think the very best people have a mix of those two things. I think I probably at times have swung too far to the art and then have to sort of peg myself back to the science and listen to the fact-based stuff. But I, I do think if you can get that balance right, and I think most entrepreneurs have definitely got a good helping of art within their decision making. And whether they listen to the science, I think is quite often the difference between being successful and, and failing. That's a really interesting perspective, sort of visualizing that balance between the art and, and the science and trying to get that perfect point between the two. I mean, particularly when you're fundraising, you're, you're often dealing with the um, institutional investors. They always look at your business in a very scientific way, and they are always looking at your data and your analytics. And I've seen entrepreneurs make light of that, sort of ignore that, whereas actually they should embrace it, even if it's just to keep the investors happy, because actually you just end up fighting and then there's a lot of friction. So I think understanding that is really important. It's easy to use a lot of art when a business is small and starting. But as it progresses and it becomes more established, you need to have more science, I think. 
And what if a business owner, I guess, especially in a creative industry, what if they just have genuine knowledge gaps in the sort of more data side of it and the numbers side of it, and I suppose the science side of it? One of the things that I talk to new businesses about is is getting on board resource that fills the gaps that they have. There's no point in someone who is really good at coming up with the idea for the business and getting the business up and running. There's no point in them being dragged down into the weeds, you know, the day-to-day detail or pretend to be a finance director or pretend to be a commercial director, whatever their gaps are. So, you know, there are two ways of doing it. Either go out and recruit somebody or go and find an advisor who can help you fill those gaps. There are an awful lot of people like me with lots of experience who are available to help. You have to choose well and you have to make sure they're the right personality. But one of the things that always happens when I see startup businesses is they don't invest in their finance function. It's not that I love finance functions. It's just every time I've seen either a CFO bought in or a outsourced finance function bought to a business, they pay for themselves in 10 minutes. You know, they're seen as a cost, but actually they're an investment. And, you know, if you're short on tech skills, go and find the tech skills. Don't try and become a jack of all trades because you'll just fall over and you won't be as good as you could be. And, you know, a lot of fundraising is put in place to go and hire these resources that the company doesn't have. And I think owning up to yourself that you've got those gaps is a big step for a lot of young businesses. Definitely. Um, I guess it's that sort of reflection and, and even just being honest with yourself about sort of the resources that you need. You mentioned, obviously, you are an advisor now, but before this, you uh, set up a worldwide media agency in the form of PhD, uh, which operates in various countries and, and continents. But I, I'm wondering about your, your own experience of kind of scaling your own business. Obviously, you help other businesses do that. But what was your own personal experience of scaling your own business? And, and why did you decide to kind of transition to a more uh, chair advisory role? In the sector we were in, the opportunities were straightforward to spot in that, you know, if you have a product that people want and you put it into as many geographies as you can afford to do it into, then they will come. And actually, it was the reason we sold. The market was changing. It was moving towards volume. And and we were stuck in this sort of middle sector where we were too big to be a niche and too small to be a volume player. So we actually sold and doubled in size overnight. And then it became clear we had something that people wanted in other other markets. So having sold, we had a holding company who were there to help fund us drive the brand around the world. But I I think, you know, scaling is recognizing where the opportunities are and getting there as quickly as you possibly can by whichever means are the most appropriate. For us, it was selling the business because we knew we couldn't do it on our own. For other people, it is about going out and fundraising. You know, I've just done a significant raise in one of the businesses I'm in so that we can launch in, in America. And the reason we're launching in America is already, with no real resource out there, 50% of our revenue is coming from the US. There's a pretty big clue there that there's probably a market for us if we were to address it significantly. So scaling's really hard. 
It was helpful that I had two other business partners because it meant we had plenty of room to grow at the top. When I see individual entrepreneurs, one of the blockages to scaling is that they, they're not prepared to let go. They're not prepared to share or get more resource in at a senior level, not prepared to let people make decisions. And, you know, you have to be pretty trusting in your senior team and you have to put a great senior team together to scale a business. You've only got one head, one pair of arms, one pair of legs and 24 hours in a day. I've seen businesses, really significantly skilled businesses that have actually been choked from growth by the leader of the business not letting things go. And it's such a shame. And the businesses sort of turn more into a lifestyle business because as the leader gets more and more tired and less, slightly less motivated, the business starts to decline. So it's a real shame sometimes. So would you say that a really important thing for, especially, I suppose, startup businesses or businesses in the earlier stages of their growth is for entrepreneurs and business leaders to really be able to let go and kind of, I guess, trust people to carry a bit of the load and to help the business grow? Yeah, I think you used exactly the right word. Usually, even an entrepreneur who sets up a business on their own, they will normally have a couple of junior partners, be it you know a tech provider or a finance person or a product developer. There's usually somebody that's part of the early team. It's very rare that you see an entrepreneur set up on his own or her own and then go and recruit people. I have seen it and I'm involved in one business where that has happened. And of course, what's happened is it's taken two or three iterations to get the right team together which, of course, wastes a lot of time and actually significant money. But trust is absolutely the right word. Finding those people is hard. And the thing is, when you're early in a business is you feel you haven't got time. Actually, what you do is you either go and find the person who's immediately available because you think they're going to make a difference straight away, or you take the least worst option. There's a business I'm involved in. We're now on our fourth sales director. The first three were people who were just available in the market, and it didn't work out. And we wasted two years going through a head of sales that just weren't good enough. We've now got a brilliant one, and it's changed the business significantly. So taking your time to find the people, and of course, time is something that young businesses don't have a lot of, but taking that time and trusting the people is really, really important. That's a really good point of taking the time just to sort of step back and not necessarily scrambling for the resources to try and make it work because you feel the pressure. That's a really good point. And you mentioned um, earlier your own experience of exiting your business and, and selling and you you advise businesses on their growth and, and exiting as well. But I'm wondering if you think that business owners and business leaders should, whilst they're growing their business, have their exit strategy in the back of their head. Is that something that should be in a business leader's mind whilst they're growing their business? Yes, I, I think they should, but I don't think it should be the absolute focus of what they do. If you set up a business just to sell it, it won't happen or it won't happen very successfully. If you build the very best business you can and keep building the very best business you can, people will come and look at it and want to buy it. You know, one of the things that I see quite a lot 
is the alignment of the management team. You know, when you start early on, or if you're going into the fundraising process, the management team all need to have the same objectives for the business. Usually what I say to people is, okay, what's the timeline on this? And they almost always say five years. It's always seven because it always takes longer to get going than you, than you expect. And then I always say, and what's the number? And they say a number and I say to them, well, that's quite conservative. I guarantee it will be a bigger number once we start having some success. If they've taken investment, most investors have got an exit date. You know, most of VC and PE funds have a maximum life of 10 years. So if you're late into that fund, it might only be five years. So that it might almost drive the decision for you. But back to your question, yes, I think business leaders should always have in their heads broadly what the plan is. It doesn't mean they can't change their mind, and it doesn't mean that you're not going to hit bumps in the road. There, will, there may be someone who, you know, when they start up, says, yes, I'm in it for 10 years, and after three or four years, think, I can't do this anymore. It's difficult to manage that sometimes, but it happens. But I think if you start with broadly the same goals, then at least you've got a chance of getting there. And all right, you, you need the people to be able to be good at what they do, but almost finding people who are aligned with the plan is, I would say, is in the top two or three things that you need when you're recruiting or choosing your partners. And I suppose it's that, that capability to be malleable and realize that the, the sort of journey is, isn't going to be necessarily an upward trajectory, but there will be, like you said, sort of bumps along the road. And leading on from that point, I'm wondering, in your wealth of experience helping businesses, what is the most common or biggest mistake that you see business owners making? That's a, a good question, and I don't have a single answer. I mentioned it earlier. One of the things that a lot of businesses almost forget to do is concentrate on cash. So I've seen very successful businesses, you know, they are on paper making a massive profit, but they're just forgetting to collect their cash. So that can be a real problem. The truth is there are probably only eight business problems in the world. And it's whether you've got one, four, and seven, or two, five, and eight. And, and it's what levers you need to pull. You know, one of the things I seem to be quite good at, particularly in the creative services space, is making creative businesses commercially successful. You know, I seem to be able to make that happen. And I talk a lot about there's only really two things that you need to concentrate on. One is to drive top-line revenue, and the second one is to manage the cash. And if you do those two things, almost no matter how badly you mismanage the rest of it, you should be all right. But one thing that I see a lot, particularly with entrepreneurs, is as soon as they've got the business up and running and it's you know selling a bit, they're sort of on to the next thing. They're not concentrating on building what they've got. They've got another idea or another brand extension or, or whatever. And of course, what happens is they focus on that and the business then starts to struggle. So one of the things I talk a lot to young business about is make sure you've got this business established. If you then want to go off and do other things or you want to brand extension or another line or, or whatever it is, then either go and get extra funding for it or put another team in place or do whatever you want to do. Making that mistake, I do see a lot. I sort of chair, mentor and advise. 
And in all three of those, I try very hard to make sure people are focused on driving the great idea they had in the first place. Now, that's not to say you can't change that idea as markets develop or as your business develops. But because they're clever people and they have great ideas, they're constantly coming up with another idea. You just have to make sure that you don't lose focus on the business that you've got. And it kind of comes back to a point that we made earlier about taking a step back, being present in what you're doing at the exact time and and business growth moves so fast and there's so much happening that I think it can be easy to sort of not take a step back in the present moment and kind of just evaluate where the business is is at. Would you say that's fair to say? I think most entrepreneurs and business leaders are, you know, they're pretty restless souls and they don't want to be a managing director. So you need to get someone in to do that, make sure the machine runs properly, uh, whether that's operations manager or MD or commercial director or whatever it is. And very often, you know, the person who's had the idea and set the business up in the first place is not actually the ideal person to run the business, you know, particularly in, you know, the creative spaces that we've, we've been talking about. But I think generally, you know, the ideas person isn't necessarily someone who's going to build a successful business. I think recognizing that in yourself and finding someone to do that for you is a real skill. People talk about, oh, it being a bit of a sign of weakness if you pass it on to somebody else. I think it's a real sign of strength, recognizing your weaknesses and then trying to find a way of fixing that and bringing strength into weak areas is a real strength. I do want to come on to the subject of investment because that's obviously what your book is all about. If an entrepreneur has just set up a business, how can they know which type of investor to seek out? There are some easy ways of working out what sort of investors you want. The first thing to work out is how much money you think you need. And if you're looking for, I don't know, anything sub half a million, then you probably are going to go and find that money from individuals, from angel investors, from high net worths, very unlikely to get it from a venture capital or private equity fund. There are funds out there and there are angel networks and you know there are places to go to. If it's very early where you're looking for 50 to 100, you're probably going to be talking to as someone said to me, friends, family, and fools, you know, that's, that's where you're going to get that money from. And, and I guess you're going to put some of your own money in if, you, if you've got some. Interestingly, the hardest place to raise money is between half a million and a million because it's too small for the in- institutional investors and too big for the high net worths and the angels unless you, you know some and you're fortunate. But anything over a million starts to get into venture capital Anything over two to three million gets you to private equity. And the difficulty is there aren't obvious places to go. You have to go and drink a lot of tea and (laughs) kiss a lot of frogs. And uh, when you're looking for funds, it's a full-time job and it's incredibly distracting. And almost every business that I've been involved in where fundraising has been happening, there's been a slight dip in the performance of the business because it's so distracting. And of course, You get a slight dip in the business at exactly the moment you don't want a slight dip in the business because you're hoping to uh, encourage investors in and show that you're a growing business. But there are four or five, six basic types of investors, and there are nuances within that. 
there are trade investors, of course. Um, people like uh, Unilever have investment arms. They're quite hard to get money from. And when times get tough, and I feel like we've got some tough times coming, we were already seeing the investment market starting to shrink. You know, private equity houses and increasingly VCs have sort of shut their doors for the next six to nine months because they want to see what's going to happen. But there, yeah, there are five or six places to go. The most important thing is to work out how much you need and then what type of investor do you want. And what I mean by that is, do you want someone who's going to be a strategic investor? So they're going to come and help you with the business. Or do you want someone who's just going to put money in and hopes to make lots of money out of it? There's only one thing that I would ask people to remember about investors is they only care about one thing, and that's their money. So if you are going to take investment, be aware of that and be aware that that's what you've got to look after. It's not once the money's through the door, you can just ignore them because that's not going to happen, particularly if they become significant shareholders, which very often if you're dealing with private equity or venture capital, then they will want a big slug of your business because that gives them a level of control. And they will, if you're not careful, drive the business for you. If you don't embrace that, you know you could end up falling out of your business without really having done that much wrong. Back to something we talked about earlier about timeframes, you know, those three things all together are very much part of the investment process. Definitely choosing the right investor is is an incredibly important aspect of growing a business. But um, you've mentioned a few there just then. But um, what kind of challenges can occur if as soon as some money comes into the business, you then ignore your investor a little bit? Or if that relationship isn't great or you do choose the wrong investor, what kind of challenges can occur? Sometimes you don't choose your investor because you've only got one potential investor. So you, you're going to take the one that's on the table, particularly if you're in a business that's running out of cash. And I've worked with several companies who have been in the investment cycle from early on and haven't made profit for five years, but are continually looking for investment. And usually when we raise money, there's only one investor. So the thought that you can always choose your investor is not actually the case. The thing that I always say to any business is make sure you hit your first year's targets, particularly if they're institution investors. They've got a wide portfolio of businesses, and they only really focus on the businesses that are causing them trouble, you know, missing targets, running out of money. And if you're doing well and you're hitting your targets, they'll leave you alone. They'll turn up. They'll do the board meeting. You might get the odd call between board meetings, but they're not all over you looking for data. So when you're setting your targets, make sure they're achievable targets. Don't get sucked into them imposing targets on you that you then know you're going to miss. If you miss the first month, sort of forgiving. Second month, questions start arriving. Third month, something happens. So make sure you you hit your targets. Some investors, particularly in, in the institutional area, they do behave like they own your business, even if they don't. And I think sometimes young businesses are slightly in awe of that and don't push back. So they say yes to everything. And again, that can be very distracting. And I would counsel that you push back. I mean, one of the things that you can do 
is have a, and it's a role I take with some of the businesses I work with, is being the sort of buffer between the investors and the management executive. So you've got a sort of non-executive chairman who, whose job, you know, the chairman's role is to represent the best intentions for all of the shareholders. And one of those jobs is to make sure that the company is allowed to get on with it and get the job done. So I think looking for external advisors who have either been in a situation where they've dealt with not difficult investors, but investors that maybe are distracting the business, finding someone who can navigate through that is helpful. If you've got private equity or venture capital investment, you should have an independent chair. If you haven't got one, the private equity company or the VC may well impose one on you. So I think it's sometimes quite good to have one in place before you go and look for money from them. The downside from individuals, investors, can be some of them are looking for something to do. So they want to come and help you run your business. And often it's outdated thinking from people who probably stopped working a few years ago. And again, that can be incredibly distracting. If it's all of their life savings that they're, you know, relatively small amount of money that they're hoping is going to turn them into a millionaire and you hit a bump in the road, they start running around with their hair on fire. That can be incredibly distracting as well. So whilst the investment community only care about money, there are so many different types of investors and trying to understand what they're like before you take them on board, even if you haven't got a choice. So I always say to people looking for investment, go and talk to companies they've already invested in, or go and talk to companies that the individuals have worked with, just to get a flavor. Due diligence is a two-way thing. The investors do a lot of due diligence on companies. Companies very rarely do due diligence on the investors, and I think it should be a two-way process. One thing that I pick up on there is sort of the importance of personality types, even with individual investors, but even on a large scale, kind of more institutional level of investment as well. But uh, one thing in the book that you touch on is you distinguish between a rational and an emotional investor. Would you be able to just explain what differentiates these two types of investors? The way that I talk about it in the book is the way that it's delineated is that the rational investor is usually an institutional investor. So it's normally private equity or venture capital. An emotional investor is normally an individual, be that a seed investor, friends and family, angel investor, high net worth. And high net worth sit on actually somewhere in between being emotional and being rational. And what I mean by rational and emotional is that very often, if you're looking for fundraising from individuals, they actually fall in love with the business or you or your team. And that can be a double-edged sword. You know, It means you've got them and they will invest, but it can also mean, back to what we were talking about just now, it can mean they want to get over-involved and cause you, you know, distraction as you're running through. The rational investor, so private equity and venture capital, when they are looking to invest, they are working out what's going to happen in five years' time to their money. Yes, the investment manager will want to really rate the business because they have to sell it internally to their um, investment committee, and they will run alongside that business for as long as they're working for that company. But it's a much more rational decision. 
we talked earlier about art and science. They use a lot of science to make a decision on whether that business is going to be successful in the future. When they do their due diligence, they look at the company every which way. The due diligence process always takes a minimum of three months. It's usually four or five months. And the difference between the emotional investor and the rational investor is that the emotional investor doesn't have to invest. They're individuals. You know, they can take you right to the precipice and right at the last minute, they'll say, you know what, decided I'm not going to do it. The rational investor, which are funds, they do have to invest because they have to fully invest their funds. So they want to get deals done. And usually once you're in the process of dealing with lawyers and due diligence, they're starting to commit quite a lot of money. Usually, I think 70 or 80% of the time, you will get through that process and the investment will happen. Might be on different terms. They might find something that either adds value or takes away value. But understanding how to deal with those and the place that I see young businesses struggle is when they move from the emotional sector, which tends to be when they're raising smaller numbers, when they move to the rational side, they find it quite hard to change the way they deal with the potential investors. Uh, And I, I do talk to investors a lot about this. If you founded a business, it's your baby. You're incredibly proud of it. You know, and it's a bit like, you know, if people are critical of it and in due diligence, that's all they do. They're just critical. They pick up every little thing and you sort of get to the end of it and you feel like you're a, you know, a fraudulent criminal because of the questions that they're asking. Founders of young businesses find it really hard to move from that emotional reaction to the rational reaction. And you have to respond in a rational way. You can't respond in an emotional way because that sort of can show a bit of weakness in you and all the team. So that pivot is where I see quite a lot of problems for younger businesses. You've mentioned quite a few pros and cons of both rational and emotional investors. But when a business goes through that due diligence, that's involved with more of the sort of institutional rational um, investors. You mentioned that, you know, it can sometimes be quite an emotionally exhausting experience, perhaps, for uh, business owners. But do they tend to come out the back end of it as a better business? What What is the experience kind of going with an institutional investor? There are many different types of institutional investors who use the due diligence process in different ways. There can be the slightly unscrupulous ones who actually use it to wear you out and you know you get deal fatigue and you get to the end of it and you agree to everything because you just want to get it done. And then you realize later that you signed up for something that's probably not going to help you in the future. We talked earlier about having a good finance function. A good lawyer will pay for themselves so many times over, particularly going through this process. So they're the people who will protect you from deal fatigue. And if they don't, they're not a good lawyer. A lawyer said to me that, you know, founders of businesses, when they're looking for investment or to sell, they need to be constantly inquisitive. You need to keep asking them as many questions as they're asking you. You know, they do it to try try and wear you down. On the other side, the good investors, uh, and I've just gone through this process. We've got a really good investor in this business that I'm involved in. They've put a lot of money in. And they, they've only been with us three months, and already we're a better business. We understand our business better because they're asking good questions. We've got better data. 
they have experience working in in our sector. And you know, the difference between them and some of the early investors is the representative from one of the early investors looks after 15 businesses. So it's quite light touch. It's turn up to the board meeting. You know, it's that sort of stuff. The new investor only works with two companies. So we get a lot of their time and a lot of input from them and a lot of help. And sometimes you feel like they're asking too much. And my job as chair is to ask them to maybe ratchet back a bit. But I have nothing but respect for what they're trying to do. They will make the company a better company. And if if you can find an investor that not only brings you money, but helps to make you a better company, I think you've ticked all the boxes. Now, kind of from the more sort of business leaders uh, mindset or an early entrepreneur, perhaps, um, many businesses actually are facing scaling their business in the wake of a recession at the moment. And achieving funding might seem like an even more daunting task um, in this particular climate. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for businesses on how to achieve funding during a recession. The thing is, it's very hard. and. What you mustn't do is put yourself in a position where you are desperate for funding. My view is you should always be able to run your business at break even in some form or another. And if you don't know whether you can or you can't, that's the first thing you should do. You should look at whether you can run it at break even. That might involve some very painful decisions. It might mean getting rid of some of your senior team. It will inevitably involve getting rid of some people. The second thing that you can do is if you've got current shareholders, it may be that when you decided that you wanted to go fundraising, you came up with a number that was too big for your current shareholders. So they weren't interested because it was just too rich for them. It might be that if you go back and say, well, actually, what I'm looking for is almost like a bridging raise, which I'm going to do at a good valuation you could raise a smaller amount of money to get you through the difficult phase. And that's something that I talk to the young businesses about a lot. And I've seen it work really well. It can get you further down the road that when you then go and look for the big raise, hopefully in better times, but even if it's not in better times, maybe you're more profitable. Maybe you you have a, a higher valuation than the number that you're looking at right now. The other thing to do, and this will become harder and harder because companies will be slower to pay in a recession, but make sure that your cash collection is as good as it can possibly be because cash in the business will mean that you continue. But I think the difficult place to be is if you've got a business that no matter what you do, it can't break even. You haven't got any shareholders who want to put their hands in their pockets. That's a hard place to be, and you're going to have to take pretty much anyone's money at any price. And that's just not a great place to be. It's been done and it happens. And if you do that, the advice that I give people is make sure there is a potential upside for you moving forward. If it's a low valuation, they've got a big chunk of your business, make sure that if there is any success moving forward, you get some of that success. They don't get all the upside. And of course, they should go for that because if you have been successful, then their money has grown significantly anyway. But tough times make everything tough, and that includes fundraising. Unfortunately, what we've had for the last probably 10 years is a market where the model is set up a business and go and raise funds, whereas actually there are quite a lot of businesses that are set up that could 
just go and do that old-fashioned thing and make a profit without having to raise money. There's a business I'm involved in at the moment. It's done a very small raise with just the people around the boardroom table, and we're profitable. And I'm feeling quite good about that coming into quite difficult times. So we've had a market that is, is expected to go and raise money. And whilst it's always hard to raise money and people always underestimate how hard it is and the amount of time it takes, there's been a lot of money around. And whilst I think there will be still be a lot of money around, because with high inflation and nowhere to put your money, you want to see growth, I think it will just be harder and harder to get. And as I said, I've seen and heard private equity and venture capital. You know, whatever happens in on the west coast of America now happens everywhere else in you know six months' time. So we've seen all the tech stocks crashing, actually back to valuations that are probably realistic, but raising money over there that you just can't. So I think that's going to come everywhere. You know, what happens in the public markets happens in the private markets usually six to nine months later. So. Um, I think we'll see valuation starting to really struggle. Yeah. And your advice will definitely give some businesses something to think about, especially leading up to a recession and in this sort of like brief window where it's likely that we're about to go into one. But we we have come to the end of the podcast now, but we like to finish our podcast with a segment called Answer the Internet. And this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs the answers to. And this question is from Reddit and it's from a user called Fancy Feast One. And they ask, why do people invest in making businesses when they would probably get a better return and far less hassle with even a conservative diversified stock portfolio? So investing in stocks and shares as opposed to investing in a business. What's your take on that? Well, I don't think that's actually true. However, what I would say is it requires investment in a range of businesses, rather like investing in a range of stocks and shares in a portfolio. So I think if an individual is investing in an individual business, there's a one or two in 10 chance that they're going to make significant money. There's a three or four out of 10 in them getting their money back. And then there's a three or four of them losing their money. If you talk to PEs and VCs, they'll say, Two out of 10, really flying is good. But, you know, I put a very small amount of money into a business, but I got 40 times my money back over a 10-year period. Now, that doesn't happen very often. And I have had others that have gone bust. But the one that I got 40 times the money from has paid for all the ones that I've lost money on and given me a big profit on top. So, if you get it right, the returns are fantastic. And if in the UK, which I think we're talking about largely, if you invest in EIS or SEIS companies, it all comes out tax-free. Whereas if you invest in a diversified stock portfolio, you're paying capital gains tax at 30% or whatever the number is. So yes, it's higher risk, but the rewards are much higher. It sounds like I need to start investing in businesses then. <laughs> Uh, and now moving on to one of our final questions. So we are Business Leader Magazine. So uh, I just want to ask you, what do you think makes a great business leader? Again, it's this mix of art and science. The most successful businesses are driven by someone who's absolutely passionate about what they do. And I don't mean passionate in a, a myopic way, but they can take people with them. You know, if you can take a company with you, you can take a group of people with you. 
then you're going to be successful. It is all about motivating people and leading people and making decisions, even if sometimes those decisions aren't right, but making decisions, confronting difficult periods, being brave and wanting to succeed, not at all costs, but driving a business forward. You've got to be right at the front of it. You can't steer from the back. You know, you have to lead from the front. Finally, do you have any final words for our audience? It is a hard process to start the business up. And I think people act in one of two ways. They either underestimate how hard it is or they're put off by how hard it looks. You know, if it was easy, then everyone would do it. And, you know, 98% of the population do not start their own business. So there's a reason for that. But if you have got a great idea and you've got a bit of backing, then you should really give it a go. The other thing I would say is if you have given it a go and it's not really working and it's a drudge and it's difficult, then give it up before it makes your life a real misery. I see too many small businesses and young businesses that are clearly not going to make it or they're only they're tripling along. You know, just give it up. 